What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today we are talking with musician, vocalist, and songwriter William Duval. Now, many of you know William as the lead singer of the legendary grunge band Alice in Chains. William has been in the band for over a decade, working with Alice in Chains on albums such as Black Gives Way to Blue, The Devil Put Dinosaurs Here, and Rainier Fog. But before joining Alice in Chains, William was in several bands, including one of his first bands in the early 80s, the Georgia hardcore punk band Neon Christ. And William has revealed that there is a deluxe remastered vinyl reissue of the band's material from 1984 in the works, so stay tuned for that album to drop. Now, at Hardcore Humanism, our goal is to help you apply some of the core principles of humanistic psychology so that you can break through barriers, find your purpose, work hard to achieve it, and build a community around you who will support your best and most authentic life. And one of the reasons that we use the term hardcore humanism is in a nod to the way that many people from hardcore punk, heavy metal, hip-hop, and other cultures embrace humanistic principles in how they lived their lives and pursued their art. Oftentimes, people who embraced these cultures and forms of art were ignored, rejected, and even at times attacked verbally and physically for who they were and the artistic statement that they embraced. And yet, consistent with humanistic approaches, they embraced their unique perspectives, found purpose in their art and culture, worked hard to achieve that purpose, and built a community to support them when others wouldn't. At Hardcore Humanism, that is exactly what we hope everyone can do in their lives. Get inspired to live a purpose-driven life by listening to the stories of these artists. And during our conversation, William clearly lays out the building blocks to this approach to life. He recounts his single-minded, determined, and persistent mission to express himself through punk rock in Georgia, a place where punk rock had not yet taken hold. And he describes how he pushed to help make Neon Christ happen, no matter what obstacles were in front of him. So let's hear what William has to say. So William, welcome to Hardcore Humanism. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. It's great to talk again. So let's go back to Neon Christ. You know, one of the things that was so impressive about what you did in that band was that it was not just about the music and it was not just about what you did as a band, but from my understanding from what I was talking before, it was also about building hardcore culture in an entirely new place. And so I thought maybe we would just start there with what, what was it like going into a place where hardcore hadn't really taken over yet? It was very much like being an explorer, you know, with a machete having to chop your way through the, through the tall grasses and the branches, you know, into uncharted territory and hope you didn't get, you know, killed, <laughs> you know, eaten alive or something. I mean, it was, uh, as you say, it, there wasn't any kind of a scene here as far as hardcore. Um, at that time I moved, I moved to Atlanta in 1982. And so, you know, at that time it was mostly Southern rock and bar bands. And then there was one little outpost of sort of counterculture for, of that time, for lack of, you know, for lack of a better word, counterculture. I mean, and that was the 688 Club. So that was the one place where the new wave, you know, or the sort of punk-ish kind of acts would come through occasionally. You know, that would be the club where Iggy Pop would play when he came to town or whatever at, at that time, circa early 80s. Um, 
And, you know, of course, Atlanta had had flashes of counterculture before that. You know, there was a there was a there was certainly a hippie culture and we were seeing the, uh, you know, the remains of, of that by the early 80s. But as far as punk and hardcore punk, it was slim pickings, hardcore. There was nothing. So moving here as a kid of you know, 14, I had this feeling of kind of dread. <laughs> you know, it was just like, oh man, you know, like I'm, I'm moving away from Washington, DC. And, you know, and I had just started finding out about the amazing scene right there in my backyard. And now we've got to uproot and go to this place where nothing is going on. And where the only thing I even know about the region of the country is negative, you know, things from, you know, the civil rights films that you see, you know, just, you know, so, and then of course, at that time, we were at the tail end of the, the Atlanta child murder case, which was a whole other, you know, thing that continues on to the, to this day as being a mystery of, um, you know, so there was just a lot of dark stuff associated with Atlanta, with the whole region of that, of, of the Southeast. So yeah, it was a lot of dread. And yet, uh, you know, once uh, once I arrived here, there was this determination because it was do or die. It really was like, if I don't make something happen here, I'm not going to be able to exist here. So I remember thinking, like, I'm either going to run away from home, you know, or I'm going to make my way back to Washington and maybe live with my grandparents. Or you know, you're just in you're just in total sort of um, you know, desperation survival mode because those are such important years of of adolescence it's just such a formative time you're coming to grips with who you really are who you want to be and it's all just starting it's all just unfolding so it was a crucial time and the one thing that excited me was the prospect of forming a punk band you know, and I had already been a musician for some years by that time. I'd been playing guitar since I was eight years old and I had really wide musical tastes from, you know, the R&B and funk that was going on to the rock and roll. You know, Hendrix was what got me started playing. So from that, I branched off into everything from, you know, Chic, you know, now Rogers and Chic to like, you know, the Isley Brothers to then over on the other end of things, things like Zeppelin. Ornette Coleman, Miles Davis, free jazz, John Coltrane. So I really had a lot going on in terms of my interests, but punk rock galvanized this certain energy that I wasn't getting anywhere else. And having heard a lot of the early records out of New York and CBGB scene, you know, the Ramones and, and uh, television, and then hearing like the English music, the Sex Pistols and the Damned and the Clash. I like all of that music. But I heard something in my mind that was even more extreme. And once I came across Black Flag, I was like, no, that's it. That's it. This is crazier. This is angrier. This is more extreme. And also in Greg Ginn's playing, I heard elements of, of free jazz. So I was like, this is what's up right here. Like if I had to go in, in a certain direction right now, this would be the direction I'd want to pursue. And then, oh, we got to move to Atlanta. So so I arrived in Atlanta with all of this inspiration and all of this determination to make something happen here, do or die, because that is exactly how I felt. So 
that was what was going on. That was kind of the context in which I landed in Atlanta. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, that decision was a, a great one for you. But because you, yeah. you've had now this this long and enduring career, but you're right. 14 years old. Right. Okay. You're 14 years old. And I mean, you know, when you think about it, it's like punk is not really mainstream. People barely know about hardcore yeah. at all. And, and you, and you have this range of musical training. I mean, it wouldn't have been that difficult for you to just say, you know something, I'm just going to be like a more conventional musician. Like you, you still right. could have had expression. What made you decide I am going to do this thing that is going to be scarier, more dangerous, more confrontational, and, you know, more authentic. But when there were so many things that could have gotten you to be even just a little less authentic, and it would have probably been easier on some level for you. Yeah, that wasn't an option for me because I had so much going on emotionally that I had to get out. And the the sound of the more extreme music was the only way that I saw to get that out. So it wasn't, it wasn't like I was just going to come here and, you know, join some, you know, Oh, I'll find some really good funk R and B band that maybe will allow me to play a guitar solo occasionally. And that'll be that, you know, it wouldn't have been good enough. It just would not have mirrored what was going on inside, you know, at that time. So I had to, I had to make the noise that, that reflected how I felt, you know, and I, upon arrival, you know, we moved to uh, Southwest DeKalb, a, a suburb of Atlanta, and I was put into the local school and uh, it was a mostly bl- black school. And it was one of those places where the academics weren't so great. And there wasn't a lot of emphasis put on that, but the football team was killing it. So the football team basically ran the school, jocks ran the school. And I, I come in there just this, you know, gawky little kid who did not fit in anywhere, you know? And so again, it was just this thing of like, okay, here's this assault happening, you know, uh, like from all directions. And I got to figure out a way to survive here and also to thrive here. And so I found the only two kids in that whole place that would give me the time of day. One of them was a drummer on the marching band. He played the snare drum of the marching band. So I was like, okay, he's a drummer. And, uh, and then I found this other kid who was a sort of a stoner, but kind of a jock, but kind of not. He was, he was one of these kids that could go between different cliques, you know, and, and be okay. Cause he was laid back enough. He was, he was handsome to a lot of the girls and he was, he was athletic enough for a lot of the guys but he also got high so he could, you know, he could roll between different scenes and be okay. And he had never picked up an instrument in his life. So I was like, look, man, I got a bass. Okay. I can let you, I can let you hold that bass. And so I got these kids to come over to my house because they all lived in the same neighborhood. And so it was a classic scene. You get the neighborhood kids to your house. So, and then I started playing them the early black flag singles Cause I had managed to find some, you know, it was a big, you know, back then it was just such a big deal to even find a record. You know what I mean? Like kids these days could never understand what you had to go through just to even find out basic information about the things you were interested in, you know? And I had the Bad Brains Rourke cassette, which was just 
huge because, you know, come to find out, oh, it's four brothers and they're from D.C. Oh, my God. And they're playing the most amazing speed rock and they can play reggae. So there was this bridge immediately to my reality and to the reality of the two kids that I was trying to convince to get in this, you know, thing with me, you know? So, um, we ended up forming a band, my first band awareness void of chaos. And, you know, I was trying to, you know, get it together, show them how to, uh, you know, kind of just the basics of this style of music. And, uh, and I started writing my own songs because that was the key thing. It was like, I want, I had to write my own songs and I had to play my own songs. So we got it together and we ended up starting to practice at our drummer's house and, uh, you know, just super primitive setup. We would record our practices and it was, you know, the classic thing you're in, you're in the drummer's basement. And so they had a situation where the main room was where his drums were set up and where our little tiny amps were set up. And then I would, they had a laundry room that had a door in between the main room and the laundry room. So I would stand in the laundry room with my guitar, with a cable that ran out to my little amp. We had one microphone and we, and it was plugged into a boombox cassette recorder player. And so the one microphone would pick up the reverberations of the music coming from the next room. And then I would stand in there with that same mic and that would be my vocal mic as well. So it was one mic for everything. And um, that's what we made our first demo tape on. And that's what I took that cassette. My, my next thing, once we had a tape of our music, where you could kind of understand what was going on. My next big goal was we have to get gigs in the city. So I would take the bus into downtown Atlanta. And one night I went to one day, rather after school, I went to uh 688. I went to the 688 club because it was the only place in town. Like I said, that catered even slightly to any sort of new wave punk sort of counterculture. And I went to Steve May, the manager of that club. And I said, man, this is my band, AVOC, Awareness Void of Chaos. We need a gig, you know? And so he, to his credit, he took this amateur one mic cassette tape made by three 14, 15 year old black kids from Southwest Cab, and he gave us a gig. And uh, the first gig we had was opening for this band called the Night Porters, who were kind of more of a clash inspired rock band. And it was their second gig. So it was our first gig, their second gig. And they ended up kind of becoming locally famous and stuff because they were playing much more commercial, you know, uh, music. But they were just starting out. We were just starting out. And we did this gig and nobody died. And it was like, oh, my God, we're playing in Atlanta. You know what I mean? Like, well, I'm playing at the club, you know. And then the second gig, a couple months later, he put us opening for the Circle Jerks, who, of course, were our idols. And I remember when I found out that it was happening, we... We were at our bass player, Roger Maynard's house, and we started like doing like we started stage diving off the couch in his basement because we were just so elated that we got this gig with the circle jerk. You know, we started moshing around his freaking his little basement rec room and diving off the couch and stuff. And, you know, so it was it was but it was a cool, exciting thing, even even though there were a lot of hardships that came with it because there weren't a lot of opportunities, but the ones that there were, we really, I relished those. So by the end of summer 83, AVOC kind of had run its course and I wanted to do something more committed, more extreme, 
just really full on, full on, more extreme musically, uh, more extreme idealistically, and more extreme in terms of the level of commitment. Like I wanted a, the kind of band that would, you know, practice every single day without fail, that just lived it, you know? And that's where I started finding, you know, the guys who would be become Neon Christ. I, I, it was Jimmy Deemer first. He became the drummer. And I asked him, first question I asked him was, can you play like Greg Somas? And he said, I can try. This kid was even younger than me. So like, I was 15. By then, he was like 13, you know, and, you know, could barely reach the kick pedal. You know, he was so little. And, uh, but, you know, that was uh, what I needed was commitment more than expertise or virtuosity. And he was committed. So that was, we, we formed the nucleus of Neon Christ with me on guitar and him trying to figure out how to play the drums. And our early practices would just be the two of us a lot of times. And then this one other kid who would come, who would just show up just to watch us, but never say a word. He was so shy, uh, but he would show up every day, which again, that was the key to me. It was like, this kid just wants to sit here and be around this. My God. So one day I struck up a conversation with him and you know, he never said two words. So I just wanted to see who he was. And, and, he ended up becoming the bass player because I, because again, he, he had tried to play guitar, but it wasn't really working out. And I said, look, I have a bass. <laughs> Same thing I'd done with, with my first man. I said, I have a bass. You can try that. And he became the bass player, Danny Langford. And then we needed a singer still. And so I had remembered this one guy who had come down to see AVOC play at the Ratlanta Punk Fest. And again, you, you know, you knew everybody in the scene. So when I, when I saw a person I didn't know, that was in itself significant. But then this kid, this guy, he was perched on the stage. He would like, he kind of propped one foot up on the stage and he was leaning in, you know, into the band and he was screaming the lyrics, even though he didn't know the lyrics. And I just thought, wow, this guy has enthusiasm, like unbelievable energy and enthusiasm. That guy would make a great front man for a band. And I just filed it away. And so a few couple months later, when I was trying to get Neon Christ together toward the end of 83, I was like, who was that guy? That guy that was screaming at me, you know, like, <laughs> and it was Randy Duteau and we got him in the band and that was Neon Christ. That was the formation of Neon Christ. And then that's when things really started sort of taking off because the scene started growing and we became kind of a focal point, you know, for that growth. Again, you know, you talk about with all the disadvantages you know, what were the advantages and the fact that it may have actually been a blessing to move someplace where nothing was going on and have to make something out of nothing. And again, we were being driven by such a deep feeling of necessity. It, it was, you know, I, at that, you know, I look back on, on myself at that time, I was just so driven and so focused on making this sound, you know, and, writing these songs and trying to drill down into what I was feeling and then expressing that in the sound. And so focused on trying to make Neon Christ the best band that we could be, you know, given all of the limitations, you know, and it was an everyday thing for us. It just, it, it was like, uh, be the, be the change you want to see or whatever. That's what I did without any grand philosophical plan around it. It was just, I have to survive here. I've, I've had to move here, you know? And, and so if I'm going to live here, I have to survive here. And this is how I can do it. But in hindsight, again, it created the, the philosophical framework that I still live by. 
Yeah. I mean, it's such an intense story. It's so inspiring because there's just so many places that you could have turned back. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of curious because I mean, listen, as you're describing it, I almost feel like I'm answering my own question that you just never considered another option. Was there any time where you were like, I don't know, like maybe this is too hard or this is this, there's other options or because it oh, just, no. the singular focus was just, is so incredible. Yeah, no, there was never a time where I considered anything else. Yeah. Once I found this group of people that were somewhat like-minded and we started, you know, creating this scene out of nothing. And, and I found these other kids who could be in this band with me at a level of commitment that matched my own, you know, it was, and we started playing more shows. And again, we had this, this ambition of, we're going to put out a record. Oh, and now we're going to book a East coast tour, you know, and, and other bands that we love that we idolize. I mean, DRI, the first time they played in Atlanta, um, supporting their first record, you know, they, they heard about us and I gave Kurt like a live demo of Neon Christ. They took it all the way around the country with them and everywhere they went, they talked about us. So, and then Jimmy Deemer, enterprising little guy that he was, he managed to get a hold of Kurt, the singer for DRI's notebook, where he had all the phone numbers and names of all the contacts around the country because again, DRI were older than we were, and they were really toured. They played every nook and cranny of the, of the United States, you know, and lived in their van. I mean, they were, they were doing it like we wanted to do it, but just weren't old enough to do it. We couldn't even drive yet. So Jim got a hold of Kurt's notebook, copied it by hand, and then started calling all the numbers. And so, and, and then we subsequently, like, all oh, this is all within a couple months' time. Like, DRI played, we played with them. Jim got a hold of Kurt's notebook. I gave them our first little live recorded demo tape. And then we went into the studio. We recorded our, you know, the, the songs that ended up being on our first record. And then Jim starts calling all the numbers in Kurt's notebook. So from like March to like June, we went from, you know, first demo tape to we have a record. It's out. And now we're leaving on an East Coast tour, you know all within like three, four months time, you know? And like, and it was really cool because again, once Jim started calling these numbers in the notebook that he copied off of Kurt, they were like, oh yeah, DRI vouch for you guys or whatever, you know? Cause it was just, you were just calling some other kid in his bedroom at his parents' house a lot of the time, you know what I mean? He, but he's the one that puts on shows in like Norfolk, Virginia or something, you know? So it was, it was so, it was just so innocent. And so like, it was so close to the ground, man. You know what I mean? It was just so like, <laughs> you know, and on that tour, of course, you know, we're doing what you did, you know, you're sleeping on somebody's floor or you're sleeping in the station wagon or you're, you know, one time we had to sleep on a skate ramp outside and it started raining and, but I wouldn't trade it for anything because again, it was, we're out here doing it, man. You know, again, Jim and I couldn't, couldn't even drive yet legally. So we got a friend of our singer, Randy Dutose to come and help us with the driving. Cause Randy, our singer, Daniel Langford, our bass player, and then this friend of Randy's, John McCormick, they were old enough to drive. And Jimmy Deemer's parents, once again, they were, they were cool like this. They gave us their sort of spare family station wagon to use on this tour. And like, all right, you boys, as long as you just do this, this, and this, you can use the station wagon. And, yeah. and so, and then we built our trailer because you had to have a trailer to hold the gear, right? So 
we couldn't rent one off a of U-Haul or whatever. So we decided again, DIY, we're going to build one. So we got some plywood and we spent time building it. After practice, we build it in Jim's driveway at his folks' house. And then we got a hitch and we attached it to the station wagon. And that was it, man. That was what we toured in. We made it all the way up to like New York, New Jersey, and we kicked it, man. You know what I mean? And we did it. And we, we made it back alive. And that was just the first six months of the band. You know what I mean? We were so energized from living on the road, playing, you know, multiple nights in a row in front of actual people. It may have been only 10 people a lot of time, but sometimes it was more. And we were just, we had been living the life, you know, the road life. You know, I'm just so grateful, man. I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine a better way to come of age. It was just an amazing time. And you hear it in the recordings. The, the record we're about to put out is it's a reissue. Side A of the 12-inch record that we're putting out is the first record Neon Christ put out. Originally, it was 10 songs on a 7-inch EP because our songs are only, you know, 30 seconds long or whatever. So the first side A is the is that first record that actually came out when we were a band. The second side is four songs that we recorded in September 84 on Labor Day, because I thought it would be great to record this counterculture music on Labor Day. And we got these four songs and that's side B. Those songs, only one of them actually came out when we were a band. We were asked by Dave Dichter from NB MDC, one of our favorite bands of the time, to be on the, the Peace War compilation, international comp, comp, compilation album, bands from all over the world. And it was a double album, double 12-inch album, huge deal. And uh, a lot of our favorite bands were on there. And uh, Neon Christ is the third song on side one of that record. And Ashes to Ashes, that song comes from this second session we did in September 3rd, 1984. But listening to that music... You know, and having to come straight off those old tapes, you know, and cutting lacquers straight from those 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 old tapes, it was just an amazing experience. And I really could hear the excitement. It, you know, it speaks for itself. And I'm just I'm glad that it survives. I'm glad that music survives and that we get to put this out now all these years later. But you know what's also so cool about it is that it's what? It's 40 years later. And yeah, man, I can still feel the enthusiasm from you. As if yeah. it's happening right now. And I'm telling you, like, I, and it's infectious because I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm a 50 year old man. And I'm thinking to myself, I gotta start a scene. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm thinking to myself, and you know, it's so interesting because, you know, again, you think about this thing that was, that was considered alternative in a not good way, necessarily. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. dangerous. And look at all of the things that went into that learning about music, putting together working groups, the work ethic, the, the networking, the figuring mm -hmm. out things having to do with tech, having to do with travel, having to set, I mean, like having to negotiate with clubs. And it's interesting because obviously the point wasn't to build a resume, but you know, like one of the things that is just so interesting about it is that here is this counterculture, this scary, you know, people are saying this is bad for people. This is, yep. this is dangerous. And, and in some ways, this is like the American dream. It's like, it's almost yeah. like, pure capitalism at its best when it's, when it's yeah. working right. And yet it was this marginalized culture doing the very things that other people said, well, they were in theory doing, but weren't doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. It's extremely ironic that, yeah, as you say, this music was put down. It was, uh, it was considered a hazard. It was considered, uh, it was considered dangerous. It scared a lot of people. It was almost like, 
this must be stopped. <laughs> you know, our kids have gone crazy. This must be stopped. I mean, that was the response of certain authority figures, but 84 is where, you know, it's still mostly just all good times, all very positive and innocent. I keep coming back to that word innocent because we just, it, we were just so, we were just so young and, and it was just coming from such a pure place. And yeah, it was, it was inspiration meets enterprise. And it's exactly uh, in line with what you're talking about. The, the so-called American dream, the, you know, all of these things that are so positive, you know, we weren't interested in, in drinking, doing drugs, being decadent and, you know, and, you know, we, we had messages in our songs for sure. And some of those songs dealt with social justice and all that kind of thing, but there was so much that's positive about it when you look back on it. And I, I see that from so many of our contemporaries, the other young people who were working in different cities all over the country and all over the world. There was so much that was positive about it. And to get the response that we got is really interesting to look back on because of, because of how, how cool it was in so many ways, how it really does reflect the best in human nature. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I'm just, I'm hoping you know, by you sharing the story, right? I mean, again, you know, people will see you in your different musical vehicles, whether it's solo, or it's, you know, Christ, or it's Alice in Chains. And, and it's, it's wonderful just to enjoy the music. There's, there's nothing wrong with just having it for that. But, you know, what I'm hoping is that, you know, as you know, it's, it's great that you're sharing the story so that people can, can think to themselves like, wow, like number one, like have, have respect for the journey but then also be able to recognize it early on, either in themselves or in other people. Because again, like back then, you're a 14 year old kid playing crazy music. And I mean, crazy yeah. in the most positive yep. side. And, yeah. and that urge that we have to, to stamp out things that are different yeah, because it's frightening. And just, you know, yeah. the hope is that the more artists who come through, who kind of tell their stories to say like, Hey, it's great that you love William Duvall now, but Look out for either in yourself or your kids or someone else's kids or someone out there mm -hmm. who maybe you just see and sort of see it early on and, yeah. and, and, you know, try, try if you can not to, not to stamp out that innocence, to stamp out that. And, right. and you and I are both parents. We, I know how difficult it is, you know, yeah. because it's like everything that I love in adults are things that terrify me and my kids. I don't want edgy. I don't want like irreverent. I don't want like, you know, <laughs> like, like kids, kids who, kids who like, who buck authority, who will challenge me and aren't afraid of me. I want quiet, docile, obedient, <laughs> timid kids who I would hate as adults. Right. <laughs> That's what I want. That's and so it's like, funny. you know, and it's like, you know, we have to, we have to like be careful about that. And you hear these stories and you think like, man, and if we could just start catching that earlier, because yeah. for every one of you, there's a hundred thousand kids, you know, they were got, able to they go got that route. Out. And they it was, and, and it's, it's just soul crushing, man. It's just yeah. soul crushing. And yeah. so just to say like, all right, well, like maybe there's just like a few more kids who we can let go this route and encourage them and support them. And, and right. who knows, who knows what's going to happen then if everybody's like activated like this yeah. in a good way, you know, the world's starting to all of a sudden look like a pretty cool place. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm with you, man. It, it, and it is, it is interesting to uh, be a parent with this history because there's so many instances where I have to, where I do have to check myself as a parent, you know, and, and pull back and recognize that, 
oh, wait a minute, man, you've been through some of this before from the other side. And you remember, like almost in a visceral way, what certain things did to you and for you, whether bad or good. You remember how you felt. You remember what was going on. And, you know, I just try to, you know, just pull back the camera a little bit, get a little bit of a, a wider frame on it just cool out. I mean, you know, yeah, obviously there are times where, you know, you can't argue and debate about every, everything, but, but yeah, there's a lot to be said for having had the experience that I had as a kid and then taking that into parenthood because it does teach an awful lot. And, and it's, and I notice a pattern among all of the, so many of the folks that I admired back then who were older and who were in other bands that I just loved, there's this pattern where you see, again, encouragement from the figures in our life, parents and so on. Greg Ginn from Black Flag owned a business from the time he was 12 years old. He built and repaired ham radios. And his father was an academic. His mother, they both were so permissive, so encouraging in the height of the black flag, you know, police confrontational, crazy counterculture, SST getting thrown out of this place and that place and being on the lam. And at the height of all that, Regis Ginn would go to the Goodwill. He would get a garbage bag full of clothes and he would deliver it to the SST office. So those guys would have something to wear. The mom and the dad, they were making, making something to eat for those guys. Henry Rollins used to live in the tool shed behind the Gin's house, the, the parents, you know, their house. You know, I look back on like Ian Mackay, same thing, very encouraging parents, very encouraging family. Um, you know, and then I, I brought up the example of, of Jimmy Deemer and his, you know, the drummer in Neon Christ and his, his folks, like, and I even look at my own parents. They weren't, they were, they were definitely, they had more questions and more difficulties and there were more challenges between us but at the end of the day, I got to do these things. Like however much I may have had to struggle at times, however much, you know, there may have been misunderstandings or whatever confrontations. At the end of the day, I got to do what I got to do. Credit where it's due there as well. You know, and again, the, the, being, being a, a young black kid in this whole scene, it made it much more crazy and difficult for them, you know? So I have to acknowledge all of that. You know, we were the all of the the bridges and boundaries that were being crossed back then to allow me to do what I did. I mean, my mother, she used to drive me to gigs and have to sit, you know, with me through them or or stand in the back of the so many shows where <laughs> there's no way she would have ever been in the building. You know, I I, I take that, I, I have those memories as well, you know. So I got my experience uh both as a you know, person that had to elbow my way to get it, to get some things happening. And I also have the memories of the people that opened the door or allowed me to do it, including my own folks. And, and so I, I take that into parenthood, you know, with a perspective, you know what I mean? Well, listen, William, this is seriously inspirational stuff. This is like, I'm totally charged talking with you. It was great talking with you again. Next Thanks, next time man. we have to do a whole thing on on hardcore punk parenting. It's got to be like a, yeah, a whole man. next level. Best of luck with everything. Thank and thank, thank you. you for coming on and, and uh, look forward to talking again. Thank you so much for having me on again, man. It's a pleasure, dude. 
So there you have it. William Duvall of Alice in Chains talking about his purpose-driven mission to express himself through punk rock in the early 1980s in Georgia with Neon Christ. Now, there is so much to take away from the conversation with William. William is now a full-fledged rock star in a legendary band, achieving both commercial and critical success. If those things matter to him, he can definitely now look back on his professional life and declare that all of his choices made sense. He's even now able to do a reissue of Neon Christ music from 1984, a very tangible nod to the role Neon Christ played in his professional and personal growth. But here's the thing. William made all those choices before he had any sense that they would lead to such huge success in the conventional sense. He loved punk rock when others did not. He committed to making punk rock music when it was not popular. He built a band and a community around him when neither of those things existed. And just listen to his enthusiasm talking about getting on the road, booking a Northeast tour, and having one of his songs on a hardcore punk compilation. He still has the excitement, the fire, the passion, as though he was just starting out. And that is such an important lesson, because anything we do that is outside the norm, or Buck's convention, is probably going to be met with obstacles. But if it matters to us, it matters. And as long as it's not hurting anyone else, it's something worth pursuing. And we may not all get to be punk rock musicians or big-time rock stars. But if we pursue whatever our passion and purpose is, work hard to achieve it, and build a supportive community around us, we can have the same excitement and passion we heard from William. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, go to our website and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time. <laughs>